Thank you for tuning in to the Starkey Multifamily Podcast. I have with me attorney Justin Smith. Uh, Justin, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Reed, for having me along for this one. I do want to say a disclaimer on here since we are going to be talking some legal topics. Uh, this is not, nothing in here is considered legal advice and please seek uh, legal counsel on any decisions you make uh, based on this information. So with all that disclaimer out of the way, Justin, uh, thanks for coming. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I've been involved in landlord tenant law really exclusively for 25 years. And it's really all that I do. Um, I first got my feet wet uh, with my in-law, with my father. He actually hired me. I used to joke that he was the only one that would actually hire me. But anyways, um, he and his practice had a, um, a municipal housing contract. And that's where I first started in landlord-tenant law. And from there, after about 25 years, it grew where um, I was involved with federal housing and HUD federally funded housing for at least 15 years. And I used to, my firm used to have more housing contracts in the federal scheme than any other lawyer in the state. I was quite proud of that. Uh, but then politics got involved and I got a little bit tired of all of that. And I started working with individualized investors, uh, housing communities, uh, property management, even, you know, mom and pop investors that have one or two houses. So um, I've enjoyed that area of practice and it's really the only thing that I do right now. Uh, I don't so much have uh, a practice that deals with a lot of the quiet title and, and some of the acquisitional aspects to real estate anymore because I just have so much volume in landlord tenant related uh, issues that come up, which ultimately clearly can involve eviction cases. But uh, the goal, of course, here, and I'm an investor myself, is to keep something productive, where a relationship tends to look like it's not making sense anymore. Obviously, you have to end it. Uh, but if we can save it and, and live another day to see another paycheck, that's my goal as, as a counselor, not just an attorney. Um, so that's what I've been doing for 25 years. And, and uh, I'm fortunate in that I uh, have an, a bunch of clients that I work well with and Whenever you select an attorney, that's all I have to say is make sure that it's a two-way good relationship. There's a lot of us out there, frankly. Yeah, and I can say, uh, you know, just my own personal input that uh, I, I did a lot of research before you and I started working together and, and many investors uh, in the Metro Detroit area uh, brought you up as highly recommended. So It's important, I think, just pragmatically. I mean, if you have a lawyer, I mean, I... I've administered housing, housing management, and then I am an investor. So I've sat in your chair, Reed. You know, I basically know the game. I know the real estate game because you know what? I have money into it as well. I'm an investor. So thank you for that. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll start off with um, talking about the lease. So the, probably the most important document that uh, there is for the landlord-tenant relationship. Um, what uh, What's important in it? What are some things you see that, that are bad and uh, just give us some general advice about it. All right. Well, the lease, as I, I actually gave a presentation about a week ago, and so this is a little bit fresh in my mind. The lease is the primary document. It defines the rights, duties, obligations between um, the tenants and the landlords. You know, it can be for any period of time, frankly. It can be a month to month. It can be a year or two. Um, for the residential setting, which is primarily what I do, I do do some commercial representation as well, but from the residential side of things, uh, certain clauses are illegal in leases. Um, certain clauses can be stricken from leases by a judge. Um, and it's all governed by a law called the Landlord-Tenant Relationships Act. I, I'm sorry, I have that wrong. That's the security clause law. The Truth in Renting Act, Act is the law that 
that defines what clauses you can have in a lease, uh, what clauses you can't have in a lease. Uh, now, I work with a lot of realtors and oftentimes I see the realtor lease that is produced, nothing against our realtor friends, but the realtor lease is often a very neutral lease document because frankly, I think that realtors, you know, if they're in the business of trying to establish relationships between landlord and tenant and get people tenanted up, they want to provide a document that is kind of neutral and not too onerous upon a tenant. Uh, that can be problematic when it comes time to actually end a tenancy relationship if you have a lease that's too neutral. Uh, the lease document itself, as I said from the inception, it, it describes the rights, duties, obligations of everybody. Uh, I know that a common question that we get is, is what, what term should one have in a lease? It does depend on circumstances, as many things depend on circumstances, but I'm not a fan of more than a single year lease at all. Uh, because even though the, the investor is thinking that they're tying someone up for more than a a year's length of time, maybe you don't want to tie someone one up for that period of time. And, and also you have to understand as an investor that even though you, you sign a long-term lease for more than a year, uh, a tenant can skip out as some of us older investors know it, at any time. And there's very little repercussions that can come after a tenant if they skip out on a lease early. So I, I usually don't have renewal clauses in my leases, or I don't even say in my lease, that a month-to-month -month tenancy will continue after expiration of the lease. And there's reasons for that. I don't want to bore everyone, but I'm not a big fan of, of long-term leases. If there is a tenant in particular that you're a little bit on the fence about with placement, I, I've had some people that uh, choose to put them on a more limited uh, three-month lease, six-month lease, month-to-month -month lease even, uh, if the property is rough, for instance, and you know that it's rough and you're leasing, leasing to someone under the guise of this is an as-is property, oftentimes I have that set up as a month-to-month -month tenancy because if you get a bad judge, when I say bad, I'm meaning a tenant-friendly judge. Um, I can't criticize judges. Uh, but when you have a bad judge, <laughs> I'll say it again, um, that is particularly landlord-tenant-friendly, even though you have a lease document that says this is an as-is relationship, um, the house is rough, the tenant agrees to accept the house as being rough. If it turns out to be inhabitable, or if there's major things with plumbing or heating involved, the as-is clause is not going to help you. And so it's better that you have a shorter-term lease rather than getting someone in there that makes a plea in front of a judge that this house is not really habitable uh, because A, B, C, and D, and they might be a professional tenant, but they, they give a whole list of things and they go off to the city inspector and have the city inspector come up, that's exactly the type of situation that you don't want to be in where you have them signed up for two years because it's going to be hard to get them out. And now what you have is a judge that's telling you that you have to do all these thousands of dollars of repairs, you know, during the term of a long-term tenancy. I would prefer being in a situation, especially with questionable properties, um, to just be on a month-to-month -month or as limited a relationship in the lease as you can. I, I know that we had discuss perhaps talking about lease term. Um, so that's kind of my spiel on all, all of that. I know that a lot of people put late fee provisions into the lease. Um, this is a very common uh, clause in a lease. I dealt with a, a client the other day and he literally had $500 
of late fees per month in the lease. Now that's clearly unenforceable. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to have in your lease a provision that tries to encourage payment and payment on time, uh, but it's another thing to have a crazy situation where you're accumulating $200 or more of late fees in month, a month. Now, if you can get it and you don't have to go before court, great. You know, I mean, it's nice to get the extra income for a late fee, but once we go into the courtroom, if a judge sees, and it depends on the court, if a judge sees that the late fees are excessive, you might get a bullseye on your back the next time you're in court again. So um, late fees are a clause that you can clearly have in your lease. Many people do. And uh, whether or not it's enforceable in the courtroom, we don't know until we know which courtroom we're going into, which judge we have. Another um, hot topic right now is, you know, with the influx of bed bugs, you know, pests, uh, rats in South Oakland County in particular. Uh, some people are putting into their leases now, and I, I have some of these lease clauses, where you offer the tenant an inspection period where they at their own expense can come in and uh, the property is as is, um, it's been given to the tenant clean, but the tenant has an opportunity to actually do an inspection if they want to have an inspection, you know, and that that inspection period has to occur within the, the seven days uh, prior to actually getting keys for the property. So that's a good way of uh, avoiding situations where the tenant says, you know, the bed bugs were here or the rats were here. How come you're not taking care of them? Uh, so you can get around certain situations like that. And the professional type of tenant will play games like that. They'll hold back on what they perceive as defects or problems with the property until you start enforcing uh, the rent that's due. Once you start serving them with notices, oftentimes the professional tenant will start bringing up issues like uh, the faucets dripping or, you know, <coughs> I have a respiratory problem because of mold in the basement. Usually you don't hear about things like that when you're shaking someone's hand for the first time. Doing yeah. leads up. But the moment that the landlord, the investor starts to enforce rent payments, that's sometimes when the professional tenant shows their feathers. So um, I have a tendency of going a little bit off topic. You're, we're talking about lease provisions. That's one. Um, another lease provision that I started to work into leases is a clause that says that if you have two applicants with two separate incomes, and that is going to be the basis for, uh, for granting someone a tenancy because their income with two people qualifies. What if one of them splits up in the relationship, okay? leaving basically one income left. You know, if that happens, then the investor is in a much more precarious situation um, moving forward from when there's a split. So I actually, I have a lease clause now that converts any term lease into a month-to-month -month tenancy if one of the co-applicants has left the property. Because what can happen is in that situation, and I see this happen all the time, once one of the two people in a relationship leave, then the one that's remaining, the rent payments will start to slow up. And then, then you'll start to hear things about the, the quality of the housing is, is low or, or there's problems with the housing and they're just doing a survival measure. But basically yeah. what they're doing is, is they're, um, they're giving you trouble. So I, I like to have clauses in my lease that protect and, and put the power back on me, the investor, the landlord, to make a decision about 
whether or not I want to move forward if one of the two parties that initially applied for the tenancy have split up. So that's another one as I was preparing for our podcast today, Reed, I, I checked that one off as something that I wanted to talk about. Okay, well, um, I'll kind of dig into some of those. I want to talk about that excessive rent you mentioned, the $500 a month in, in yeah. late fees. I think maybe just a comment, but the on a legal side, of course, that's not legal, but I think on a uh, just a, a greedy standpoint even, I don't think that it's effective to do too much because if you get to the point where they can't pay you, then you've lost everything. So that's that, you want to have it reasonable so i mean even you may think you're being greedy by asking for too much but i i think you're just uh, you're just throwing money away by asking for too much because once you reach a point where they can't pay you or they know that they can't then you're not going to get another penny out of them that's right and uh you know all of this it, it's some of this is style some of this is just trying to make money but at the same time being reasonable and nice to people as best you can because ultimately if 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 something happens and sometimes bad things happen to good people and you can't control it. Other times you have professional tenants that are playing the game, but ultimately uh, whether or not we all get hot headed with our tenants or make big time demands for $300 late fees and things like that, there will be an ending at some point to the landlord tenant relationship. And we don't want to strain the situation so much where when the tenancy does end that, that basically you have a trash house because people will will build up resentments if if you come off at times being way over the top with them so you know maybe that that parlays into read what you're saying a little bit in that you know ultimately we want to make some money for ourselves clearly but we also want to provide a, a a relationship with our tenants such that in a practical way that that relationship continues on a good respectful basis moving forward so you mentioned uh, professional tenants as well. Uh, how how do you identify them in the beginning so that you can prevent that, you know, in the end? And then and then also kind of throughout the relationship, how do you prevent it from becoming to where you have those tensions? So obviously there's a good screening and then probably managing them politely, like you said. But what other things can somebody do? You're first trying to select your tenant. I found that the tenant that doesn't have, for instance, like the security deposit money all right up front, okay? Let's say you're charging about a, a month or a month and a half for security deposit and they start asking you to, to change your lease terms or change your requirements. I, this has happened to me a number of occasions when I've been doing lease ups. They actually go through my lease and I do show them my lease because I want them to be informed. But the tenant that, that starts nitpicking your lease uh, complaining that the grace period is too short or, um, or, or that, you know, the requirement for security deposit money is due up front before they even take the place. You know, those are the types of things where, where you know that you could be dealing with a problem tenant, a professional tenant. So uh, if you get resistance and pushback, or even we have to be careful with this one, but, but if you hear a tenant when they're talking to you, talking about how bad their last landlord was, don't assume that we as the landlords are going to be Prince Charming or, or Cinderella. You know, they, they're probably going to treat you as a landlord, perhaps similarly how they treated the last landlord. I mean, we have to assume that. We might all think that we're, we're really good landlords and that's not going to happen to us. But uh, when a tenant starts talking to you, a prospect, about all the things that the previous landlord uh, did incorrectly, then uh, be afraid. You know, you might want to think about someone else. 
Another thing about uh, professional tenants is um, they often complain about the small stuff at the front end. Um, they'll complain about uh, the way the paint looks, uh, the way that uh, there's, a, there's a blind that's hooked up that's a little bit crooked. Um, for those that are complaining about the small stuff early on, you, you better make sure that you stay on top <clears throat> of that tenancy situation to make sure that all lines of communication for repair requests perhaps go through even a text or an email form. You can even put it in your lease that the official line of communication for tenant-related requests and repairs shall be by texting me at this number or by sending an email. That way, uh, you can kind of have them document the, uh, the whole history of interactions truly between landlord and tenant. And that will ultimately help you out if you have to prove that a tenant's being unreasonable. If you have an unlicensed property and you start leasing the property up, the professional tenant loves that situation because they don't tell you that they're going to cause the problems with calling the city on you, but they will call the city on you the second, the second that you start asking for your rent money. Okay. So if you're in Detroit in particular, where there's a lot of substandard housing and substandard housing is, is anywhere, uh, you have to assume that each local municipality has their own licensing regulatory measures set up because they make a lot of money off of it, frankly, the cities do. So if you, if you put someone in there before you have a full license, I know that a professional tenant's gonna love that situation the moment that they don't pay rent and, and you start asking for rent by sending them a notice. And then lo and behold, you know, they've known the whole time as you do that you haven't had a licensed property. Um, that will basically end, put you in a situation where you're going to have a court battle and the judges are not going to like you too much if they find out that the property was rented without a license. Professional tenants prey on unlicensed property owners. Yeah, and I'll, I'll piggyback on that. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of investors, you hear the negative uh, relationships between the uh, city for whether city inspection or rental inspection or whatever it is, but ultimately when you break down some of the walls that there's obviously tension there because they want you to repair stuff and you don't want to have the money or don't want to spend the money on it. But I think ultimately we're all looking for the same thing. We want to ensure that we have safe, habitable houses, at least the good investors for, you know, for, for the tenants or if we're selling them for the end buyer. And so I think we have the same goal. And I think when you break down past that, that licensing gives you that extra, um, you know, Hey, I've, I've at least made this house habitable to this city's standards and, and I've done my job to get everything there. So if it does go bad, you've got a lot of other people on your side that you can say, look, it's been signed off by non, you know, third parties that don't have a, an investment in this, in this house. So. Yeah, that's right. And, and understand that the, um, the people that come in and do, housing quality inspections for section eight departments and also the municipal inspectors that license up a property at the inception of the landlord tenant licensing procedure they cover most of the habitability related issues okay every little defect in a house that is not habitability related is not something that necessarily is going to hurt you in the courtroom a lot of people don't understand that uh, if there is uh, some bubbling in the paint, for instance, that, that no one noticed at the front end um, and the tenant starts complaining about it. From the standpoint of landlord-tenant relations, sure, you might wanna take care of it. 
But if a tenant is calling you all the time on stuff like that, um, not every little defect in the property is habitability related. And, and, and yeah, if you have that stamp of approval from the city or from the housing quality inspector, if you're working with section eight departments, then yeah, ha having that stamp of certification, this property passes is a good thing. And, and I actually have it in my lease that, that this property is in good condition. Well, actually all of my properties are, um, maybe not the case for everyone, but I have it in my lease that this property has passed housing inspection and, uh, and that it's being turned over in that condition. I'm working into my leases, as I said, the whole thing about uh, giving them a right to um, inspect if they don't want it. They never do. You know, you put it in your lease. I mean, you, you put a lot of things, you, you put it in writing and they sign off on it. And, and I've never had one tenant that I know of that has actually done an actual inspection um, upon the landlord saying that the property is in good condition. But by putting it in the lease, it's yet another thing that if there's a challenge in court, in the eviction phase that you can always point to the document and say, hey, not only was the property inspected and approved by the city, not only was the house turned over to you in good condition, uh, but you also signed off on it and you had this ability if you had any concerns at all before you even moved in here on, uh, on getting your own inspection. Now I did have someone in one of my own properties and I was surprised, but they did actually call in an HVAC person and um, and made a complaint about the fact that that my my ducks seemed dirty and <laughs> they had an asthma problem. <laughs> so you know that put me into a, a situation, you know, to be very cautious. And you know, sure, spend the extra two hundred bucks, you know, to 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 eliminate that particular issue and then then move on with it. Cities and their inspections, they'll they'll make their money. They'll collect their one hundred to three hundred dollars uh, yearly or bi yearly. To get you inspected and of course we all can inspect the follow expect a follow-up inspection cities are making a lot of money but ultimately uh hopefully what they find is uh is a property that doesn't have too many things that you need to take care of um, i hear that um that center line is kind of tough i hear roseville or uh roseville can be kind of tough i i, I know that hazel park used to have its issues with with reinspections and things like that, but uh, I'm going a little bit far afield here. That's okay. Yeah, yeah in my own personal experience, I found Warren to be pretty difficult. Warren, I forgot about Warren too. Right, that's that's almost the gold standard of difficulty. When I go in there, when I go in there on my landlord tenant situation, uh, there's this whole other side of the the main floor that's dealing with code enforcement. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty busy room. I think it's on Wednesdays that they do all of those code enforcements. Yeah. But with those, by the way, usually, usually you get through those too. They, they write you a misdemeanor ticket, which can be frightful. All they wanna see is, is to compel the person that's cited. First of all, they want you to pay the fine, but they, so long as you give them a reasonable compliance plan about taking care of the situation, you have the ticket written down to something less than a misdemeanor. Um, it's still gonna cost you about the same amount of money depending on the city you're in. But yeah, Warren's pretty bad, you're right, Reed. So um, let's let's talk about probably the, the juiciest part of the talk here, um, where I'm sure everybody is interested in. I definitely see the most questions that you end up answering uh, through some Facebook groups and stuff. Um, well, hopefully, I make, hopefully I make it juicy. 
Yeah, well, well, I mean, I, I guess it could be a dry topic, but I know everybody's interested in it. Who's you know maybe managing their own properties, or right. you know maybe some people that they're looking to buy properties. But it's the eviction process. So, so let's start with what reasons can you move to evict somebody? So there's the obvious of no non-payment. Um, there's habitability, which may be less known. Are there other reasons that uh, that you may move to remove somebody from the property? Parties, barking dogs, um, smoking weed or otherwise. Um, we can cover that, by the way, with the changes in the recreational laws. Um, you know, I get a lot of questions on this. Um, disabled cars in the in the driveway, um, wrecking the place. Um, you can you can choose to initiate an eviction process primarily in one of two ways. One is financial, if they're not paying rent or utilities, okay? Um, that's started with a demand for possession notice. Um, it's called a seven day notice and there's you know some, some tricks of that, but you can start with that. Or if you really want the tenants gone, uh, you can start out with something called a notice to quit, which is a 30 day notice. And I'll explain the timing of seven day versus 30 days in a moment. But a notice to quit involves really conduct breaches in the lease that are substantial and are not financially related. Okay, so notice to quit for non-payment of rent, seven day notice. Almost everything else that is a substantial breach of the lease that, that does not have to do with paying money is a um, notice to quit, which is a 30 day notice. And I talked about some grounds that you might choose to list on a 30 day notice. Now, another, another grounds for a 30 day notice is if there is no lease, okay, or if uh, the lease is over, the term is done, and then you can start it out with a notice to quit. To And notice to quit, by the way, is a termination type of case where the tenant itself does not have a right to stay once you prove your case. The demand for possession, the seven-day notice, because they're not paying rent, that always gives the tenant the right to pay and stay. Mm -hmm. So I get a decent amount of clients. Most of them are newbies. And sometimes I don't do the best job maybe explaining all this, but they, they give me a, a demand for possession notice that they've already sent out to the tenant. And then the tenant doesn't pay and they give the case to me and say, Smith, do your thing in eviction court. I want them gone. And I say, well, no, wait a minute. I, I just have to clarify this. You, you can't have someone gone necessarily if you sent out the seven day demand for possession notice. Um, the demand for possession notice gives the tenant always the right to pay what's, what's claimed due in owings, even through the court process. So, you know, I get frequent flyers all the time where I'm dealing with non-payment or rent cases three times within a, a year's period. Very frustrating for the investor and for the landlord. Mm -hmm. They have to pay the lawyer and put food on my table instead of keeping it for their table. So, you got to know your, your theory first. You got to know your goal. If your goal is, is to get rid of a tenant, you might have a problem with a demand for possession. You get into court quicker with a demand for possession because it's only a seven day notice. Okay. But once you're in court, it opens the door of habitability related issues. Uh, the faucets dripping, mold problems. They're not doing the repairs, even though it's all a bunch of garbage in your opinion it still gives the tenant the right to dispute what you're charging for rent and what's due in owing. And it gives them a right to stay. 
if they pay whatever the judge determines. So that's, that's the difference between the two primary cases, demand for possession and termination based with the notice to quit. The notice to quit is a very important document because it's a 30-day notice. The, the worst news that I can give to someone that did their own 30-day notice is at the 30th day that they waited out all this time and I look at the notice and there's fundamental things that are incorrect about the notice. Okay. And then I have to give them the bad news of saying, Hey, you know what, you can give the notice to me to redo and I'll get it right for you. But guess what? Then we got to wait another 30 days. Uh, I do want to jump in. <clears throat> so like, we didn't talk about this before, but the, the processes that we're talking about are specific to Michigan and maybe even more so Metro Detroit. But um, if you're in another state other than Michigan, some of these rules are going to be different. There, there's no question about it. I, uh, I had someone come to me and they were from Oregon and, and basically what is our seven day demand for possession notice in Oregon is a three day demand for possession notice and they, they call it something else. Um, I've kind of railed on this a little bit on some of the Facebook pages, but there's no such thing in mission called a notice to pay or quit. Uh, that, that is basically, if you start out with a document that looks like that, um, it's going to get probably kicked out in court if the tenant shows up with another attorney. So uh, I swear I get that with new clients coming into me about five or six times a month. And every time I see it, uh, I want to keep reminding people in the various Facebook investor groups to just make sure that you get the, the preliminary notice right if you're doing them yourselves. And it's much more of a problem if you get the 30-day notice to quit incorrect. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, every, every state's different. Um, a lot of the concepts are the same and the, the, the timelines maybe work a little bit differently, but every state is, is very particular. I'm only licensed to practice law in Michigan. There's other attorneys that practice in various states. I only do it here. And uh, I get some questions from my cousins in Ohio about a tenancy that they're involved in. And I'm kind of like, whoa, you know, all I can tell you in theory how I think this might work, but I'm not sure about the procedure precisely or the deadlines or timing. So I can only speak with expert authority to Michigan law relative to landlord tenant. Now you, you, you talked about uh, making mistakes on a, a seven day notice. Yeah. Uh, so there is a, a state form to fill out for that yeah. seven day notice. I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm struggling to see where they would make the mistakes on it. So sure, it's see, it's see, and I'll, I'll turn to that. Okay. And we can cover that. Um, there's a couple pages that I'm going to, ask people to make sure that they, um, if they're doing their own forms, um, they should know where to find forms that are fillable and free, by the way, um, and are compliant with Michigan law. So let's, uh, do you want to start read perhaps with the demand for possession? That's the situation where someone uh, hasn't paid their rent and basically the landlord wants, uh, wants their rent money, but we'll give them an opportunity to stay if they pay. Yeah. Um, so that's I'm looking at that right now. And that is, Form number DC 100A, yeah. right on. Um, that's a demand for possession for non-payment of rent. That's the Michigan form. You can find this form, at least an attorney usually goes to, uh, they, they Google uh, Michigan S as in Sam, C as in Carl, A as in Adam, O as in Oliver. Michigan S-C-A-O forms demand for possession, okay? And then they find this form, okay? So you get to the form and 
one of the two forums has at the bottom, and I don't know if they can see this, but it says how to get legal advice. That's the one that gets mailed, and I'll, and I'll talk to you about mailing and service in a moment, but that's the one that gets mailed to the tenant itself, not the, not the form that says certificate of service. So sometimes people screw up on sending out the wrong notice. And if this comes up in a courtroom and you get a tenant-friendly judge, you could have a problem. So I'm just saying, and I'm reiterating, make sure that how to get legal advice, that notice is the one that gets mailed out to the tenant. Um, a lot of mistakes, people don't add and all other occupants. Reed, do you put all other occupants on yes. all of your notices? Yeah. Okay. Do you know why? Um, I'm well, testing you. This would be a guess, but I would assume because uh, if, then the person who is there wouldn't be evicted. So you would kick the person out that you sent the notice to, but not the other people. You're absolutely right. We don't know who's squatting on the car. We don't know if there's a boyfriend, girlfriend that, that moved in after the fact. Um, all we have is the name of the person that's under lease. Um, so we put all other occupants in there for a number of reasons. It covers pretty much any adult that might be there that we don't know about because we might go through the entire eviction process and if you don't put all other occupants on your notice itself, the judge will not give you the right to actually go forward and have a bailiff put out another adult occupant that has established residency in the apartment or home. So that's one of the big things is that a lot of newbies, they, they neglect to when they're addressing out their notice, they, they forget to put the name of the people that are under lease and they forget to put in all other occupants. Okay, so that's an important one. One other thing is, uh, oh, the rent line item. There's, there's a line here, a blank, where the person that's generating the notice has the opportunity of putting in the amount of money that is due. Now that, that money is only supposed to be the rent, okay? All the other charters like late fees that are due, utilities that are due, it's not gonna kill your case, but it's better just to put the rent line item number down there, okay? That's, that's a mistake that a lot of people make as well. Um, if you have an LLC, make sure that you always sign the notice at the bottom next to your signature, put, type out your name or write out your name for blank LLC, okay? I always want people to be able to preserve their LLC status as best they can. There's a lot of pitfalls in that. But always, always, when you're operating under an LLC, sign your name for, you know, Acme LLC, whatever it is. Um, so that's something that I would recommend. Whenever you sign off on your notices, make sure that you're the representative of the LLC. That because you get a personal injury lawyer and they're looking for anything that you did wrong to get through your LLC and maybe get at your personal assets. And that's for all legal documents. Just all so, legal documents. Yeah, just so everyone knows. Yeah. That, I learned that one in law school, actually. That was like one of the first things that we, uh, we learned is that if you're setting up a, a corporate entity and the whole purpose, frankly, of setting up the corporate entity was for taxation or for personal asset protection, there are certain things that you must adhere to to maintain your LLC status, to maintain your protections. Um, signing as a representative of your, of your company, um, things like keeping corporate minute books, um, doing proper authorizations, having a, uh, an LLC operating agreement, uh, basically don't commingle assets, don't have a, an extremely high level of, of personal management over the property yourself. Um, there are so many reasons that one can get the corporate or LLC protection pierced through by a good attorney that's coming after you for like a personal injury or mold related problem. 
so many ways that it can be done. That's why I put more stock in making sure that you are well insured as an investor as opposed to fo focusing so much on the LLC. But going back to the whole item of LLC and signing, if you've set up the LLC, you might as well make sure that whenever you sign, you sign your name as member of the LLC. Okay, we talked about um, mailing the correct notice. Here's a common mistake. Whether or not we're dealing with a notice to quit or a demand for possession. A lot of investors try and be heroes or superstars by trying to hand deliver notices, the preliminary eviction notices to their, to their tenants. Um, there's a number of reasons why you might not want to do that and you just might want to take the easy route and putting a 50 cent stamp on there and just mailing the notice. If you try and personally deliver a notice to someone, sometimes just from the basic standpoint is they might not be a happy person to begin with and you can get yourself into trouble. So why are you mixing it up trying to hand a notice to someone? I would say if you're gonna hand notices to people, uh, you know, you, you just make sure that you're safe, that's all. If you just mail the notice to the, to the tenants, then that covers everyone that's in the household, as opposed to if you hand it to someone, then that only covers that adult occupant when you hand the notice to someone. So that's why I always recommend, in, in lieu of, of actually going to someone's house, the rental property, and handing it to someone, you just drop it in the mail. Okay, that, that's truly the way to go. If you choose to send it certified mail, that's not an authorized way of serving it. Just make sure that you do it by regular mail. And then if you want to, tape it to the door, that's fine. But, but the controlling method of service is going to be the mailing, in my opinion. That's what I always do. It keeps me living to see another day. I don't get in my tenants' faces about it. And, and I know that if I mail the notice, I don't even need proof that it was received. All I need to do is check off a box when I'm filing in court that says that I mailed it and then we're good to go. So um, I stress mailing when it comes to getting those first notices out. Right, so that's demand for possession. Uh, those are the easier forms, Read when you're doing a seven-day demand for possession notice. The more difficult one is the notice to quit. Before we go into the notice to quit, I, I see a lot of people confused on the timeline. And again, this is just Michigan, but so yeah. that, um, you know, the seven-day notice or demand for possession, yeah. when can you send that out? Right, so when you send it out, um, the day that it hits your mailbox, is the day that you put on your form and you sign it, okay? Uh, you can't actually file in court until nine days later. I, I don't know if that's kind of where you're going with this whole thing. They yeah. call it a seven day notice, meaning that under the black and white terms of the notice itself, it says that you have to pay within seven days. That's why they call it a seven day notice. But it really, when it comes to the standpoint of filing it in court, it's a nine day notice because the court allows for one extra day for mailing um, mm -hmm. and then there has to be the following day where it's it's mature to file in the courtroom so that's the difference between nine days versus seven days was that the question that you were going after yeah, well, so uh, when so you can send that out what i was suggesting i was going to go through the whole timeline so the rent's due on the first the second yeah. day you can send that the seven day notice yeah uh, uh, okay I've always said on the 10th day, but you just said the 9th, you can then proceed. So what's the step after that? Okay, actually, I like your line of questioning a little bit better because I think that that would be of more value uh, to, the, uh, to someone that's watching the podcast. Let's go through the actual timing of it and kind of parlay into 
the timing of like what a full length eviction would take. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the lease. The lease says, for instance, and I see this most commonly, rent is due on the first, uh, but you shall have a three or a five day grace period. Okay. Even though there's a grace period, you can issue the, uh, the demand for possession the day after rent is due. I wouldn't do it because, you know, that'll just aggravate the tenant, but you're free to do it legally, even though there's a grace period. If rent is due on the first and there's a grace period until the fifth, you can actually mail a notice out on the second. I tell all of my prospective tenants before I sign up with them, you know what? Yeah, I'm a landlord lawyer. Um, you'll, you'll get a notice from me if you're a few days late, okay? But that doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. It's just to cover me. I don't want our lines of communication ever to fall by the wayside or for you to crawl underneath a rock. I want you to talk to me, okay? Um, that's how I initially make my pitch for um, when I'm talking to a prospective tenant. But yeah, you can send this notice out anywhere from the 2nd to the 5th to the ninth, whenever you want to send it out, it's up to you. You have to establish as a landlord and an investor what your tone is going to be with your tenant. I mean, if you're popping them with a demand for possession on day two, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just you have to perceive how is this going to set the course moving forward for your landlord-tenant relationship. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. I mean, the investor knows that better than I do because the investor is going to be the one that is going to be dealing with the tenant more so than I am. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so let's say you send it out, okay? Let's say that they're late on rent and you send it out, let's say on the 5th, okay? Um, then we have to wait the nine days if you mail it out after the 5th to have an actionable case that you can use the notice to file in court with, okay? So now what are we, what are we at? We're now um, at day nine days, the 5th. So we're now at the 14th of the month, right? Where the decision has to be made if they haven't paid, do we file in court or not? Uh, if you file in court and you, you get the court filing on the 15th or 16th of the month, the court will then set your first court date. All right. And that, that will happen within about 10 days. So now you're at day 25 of the month. At day 25, you have your court hearing. And if the other side doesn't show up or if the other side agrees with you, they will get 10 days to cure whatever amount is due and owing. So now you're at day 35, all right? Before you can actually, if they completely screw you and don't pay you, go through the court hearing and they're still in the property, still haven't paid anything, it's actually at day 35 that you have to finalize the eviction process. And I'm talking about the, this, this timeline just very generally, okay? I mean, I'm saying day 35. It, it, it might move back or forth depending on how quickly you get your case scheduled, depending on whether or not they have asked for an attorney and put the case off by right for an extra seven days. This, this is a target that moves. So I'm just talking about in the best case scenario, day 35, you'll, get a, you'll have a judgment in hand from the judge that says they have to pay or move by that date. If they haven't paid or moved by that date, we have to follow the, the final step, which is an order of eviction. Uh, in fancy legal parlance, they call it a writ of restitution. But that happens at or about day 35. And then there might be some real delay in getting the bailiff to put someone out as quick as possible. I mean, as investors, we want to turn this property over and get it productive as soon as we can. So mm -hmm. believe me, you and I want to get in there like as of yesterday. But if we have a judge's order that says that there to move by the, you know, whatever day it happens to be, let's say the 35th day in the process, 
then the bailiff themselves, your eviction is not the only eviction they're going to have on their desk. Yeah. So, you know, it, it very well could be another 10 or 14 days, even after that point, to, to get someone out. So call it the best case scenario. I'd say that if someone, a tenant really decides to stick it out, you're, you're looking at about 35 to 45 days to, to finally getting a bailiff out there with an authorized judicial order um, to put someone's things to the curb. In Detroit, you have to have a dumpster put in the driveway, um, which is another $350. And you can't do anything if you're in Detroit as far as getting the bailiff out unless the dumpster's there. I think that's why we might have so many dumpster people on these respective uh, real estate websites is because, you know, it's a very fertile and, and lucrative side to this business, especially when a particular city like Detroit requires that the dumpster has to be there. Um, now, you mentioned on the court thing, I think uh, it'd be worth mentioning. Now, if you are an LLC, you cannot represent yourself on that. Is that correct? That's correct. That, believe me, that helped me and my fellow brother and sister lawyers um, when they started cracking down on this about 10 years ago. Uh, if you have an LLC, um, it's basically that you have established an entity um, and you can't represent an entity because you have to be a lawyer to represent an entity. As a constitutional right, we can represent ourselves only if it's our own property. But you if you have in your lease document or on your deed that this property was held by an LLC or the landlord is an LLC, if you think that you're going to have the ability to, to go into court and represent yourself in this landlord-tenant relationship eviction case, uh, most judges will catch you on that now. Yeah. Some of the ones up upstate, they still let it slide a little bit. And a lot of people are still getting away with it so long as the case doesn't go before the judge. You know, they file the papers on their own, even though it's an LLC. The court clerks don't catch the fact that, that you don't look like a lawyer. They don't question you whether or not you're a lawyer and you file the case. And then if the tenant doesn't show up in court, many cases will just take the paperwork from whoever does appear in court, whether or not they're a lawyer or not. And so long as it doesn't go before the judge, oftentimes people still get away with representing themselves. They still try it. But I get a lot of calls from people that tried it and the judge caught them on it, in which case I have to step in and maybe even charge you a little bit more because if you filed the case all wrong, I have to consider whether or not I'm going to have to correct it. So, yeah. so at any rate, yeah, that, that, that started to be enforced read about 10 years ago. The, the law has been on the books for many years, but I started to see the judges really crack down on that whole thing about 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's, that's the timeline of the, uh, the seven day, which would be for non-payment. Right. And then the notice to quit is when we want them to remove how, or when we want to, we want to physically we'll terminate remove. the tenancy. We want to terminate the tenancy completely for some substantial reason in the lease that was breached. And I, and I say in the lease because that's why it's important to have a good lease is you have to have uh, clauses that, that expressly set out what you expect your standard to be. Okay. If, if you have a good detailed lease, then you have a better chance of being successful on a termination case in court. And by the way, termination cases can also be, I alluded to this early on, if, if you're out of the term of the lease or if there is no lease, then a, a notice to quit a 30 day notice would be the appropriate notice in a case like that. Uh, but on the process of the 30 day notice, that whole timeline that I told you about is delayed from the standpoint of we have to wait 32 days before we issue, before we can file the case in court after issuing the, the notice to quit. 
because it's called a 30-day notice. Uh, so on the notice itself, you actually, there's a number of boxes, there's a number of lines, it's less intuitive than the demand for possession notice. So the 30-day notice basically means we've got to wait 30, 32 days before we can file the case in court after we've mailed it to the tenant. So that whole timeline that I was talking about of, of 45 to 60 days before you can get someone's things out, uh, a 30-day notice is going to be longer than that because you have to wait out that initial 30 days, not the nine days that I first talked about, but the full 32 days. So that's the timing of the situation. It, it's a bitter pill to swallow to basically send someone a 30-day notice and understand that you can't accept any money while that 30-day notice is pending. Otherwise, you got to start the notice over again. Uh, and that's another thing that I, I think that a lot of new people to the eviction process don't understand. If you seek to terminate someone with a notice to quit, a 30-day notice, you cannot accept basically one penny of rent while that, or, or payments of any sort without a clear understanding that, that the acceptance of payment does not stop the 30-day notice from, from moving forward into court. You are seeking to terminate the tenancy. So if you accept rent or any payment after you issue it and it gets before the judge that you accepted a payment, um, the judge will say, I don't have jurisdiction. You have to redo your 30-day notice. Can we, uh, can we dig deeper into that? So I, I want to clarify, on the seven-day notice, you can accept payment because yeah. you're not removing them. On the, the notice to quit, so there's different reasons you could do that. So if it's the end of the lease and you want to terminate them, but you're still going to collect that last month rent, or am I incorrect on that? You're incorrect. Um, what, and, and you're incorrect on that. That can, that can bog down the whole termination process. If you accept the last, what I try and do is I try and get the last payment of rent that I can get. And then I pop them with a 30 day notice right after. So that way, you know, you're not going through a period of time where you're going without rent and relying on, you know, taking the money from the security deposit. That's the one bad thing about 30 day notices, especially at the end of a tenancy is, is that conceivably there can be a period of time where the tenant is living for free and they're not leaving. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes that's just the nature of the beast. You have to wait in that case to have the, um, any money transferred out of the security deposit done after they truly vacate. Uh, it seems alien and not intuitive to a lot of people. There are certain clauses that you can put in a lease that will help you along with not having to serve a 30-day notice if the lease isn't renewable or if it doesn't continue on a month-to-month -month basis, if you have those clauses in the lease, then you have to issue the 30-day notice uh, if money is accepted after the last day of the, the lease itself. It's confusing, um, and people get into a lot of trouble over this one, but uh, that's the one downfall that I always have to counsel people on about issuing a 30-day notice, is the fact that they should probably time it such that they get some money and then they issue the 30-day notice because I, I, as an investor myself, who wants to go without a month's rent? But no. you also have to understand that the laws are set up such that they tried to create this so that there's no confusion about how acceptance of money will suggest to a tenant that, that they can stay longer. Doesn't make much sense, but it's just how the law works. There's a case called Forest Hills. I won't bore everyone and put them to sleep with starting to talk about precedent and things like that, but it's called the Forest Hills case. We'll also put in the show notes, we'll put the uh, 
the link to the the notice to quit. <clears throat> yeah, one thing that one thing that thing that I if we can get in very briefly about filling out the notice to quit is uh, the rules as far as all other occupants still still are the same. On the notice to quit, you actually have a blank where you're supposed to fill in the date that they're supposed to be moving by. A lot of people make the mistake of just putting 30 days in there because they figure it's a 30-day notice. Because of the mailing and things I talked about, you have to count out and put a date in there that is truly 32 days after you signed off on it, okay? So I, I actually make my staff and whoever's doing these notices make sure that they count out 32 days and put 32 days on that blank that specifies the move out date. Um, and again, the same concerns uh, that I have about mailing out the right notice also apply to the notice to quit. The one that the landlord keeps for themselves says at the bottom, certificate of service. That's the one we retain. And the one that goes to the tenant is the copy of the notice that says how to get legal advice. Um, the notice number for that, for the notice to quit is DC100C. So yeah, notices to quit lengthen the process by about 20 days. And you have to prove in court, in the most simple case, that they don't have a lease anymore or they're out of the term of the lease. Or if you've breached, or if they've breached the lease, you have to specify uh, the, the lease provision that, that bans the breach, okay? And you have to prove that in court. And it has to be a substantial breach. It can't be something like they, uh, you know what, they didn't trim the hedges and it's in the lease. So, you know, I'm gonna give them a 30-day lease. A judge is gonna look at you and say, really? You know, and, and, and they're going to determine that that's not a substantial enough breach of the lease to force someone to move because they didn't trim the hedges. It has to be a substantial breach of the lease. And by the way, every lease should have something called a chronic late payer clause that authorizes termination. Uh, so if they have paid you late a number of times, like let's say two or three times, it should say in the lease that you have the right to terminate. If you're sick and tired of frankly dealing with late payments of rent, you have the right to terminate the lease with a 30 day notice to quit. So moving uh, on to, you talked about delivering of the, the notices. Um, you and I have gone over this as well, but we'll kind of talk about electronic communications. Can you, can you service though, can you serve those with um, email or other methods? Sure. Uh, you, uh, this law changed, I think, about five or six years ago. I actually talked to the Free Press about it when it first came out because there were situations where, uh, because a law passed that said that we could serve uh, electronic legal notices, uh, the, that was a new law. Some people were looking to shame other tenants by posting it on their Facebook page and, and things like that. So, um, so long as you have an authority granted in your lease or a freestanding agreement says that you have the right to serve all legal notices to the tenant by a certain means and you know it can either be by text or 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 by some other electronic service media it can be by email of course uh, you can have that and you can do it but it has to be in your lease or it has to be an agreement that authorizes you to have that right and it also has to have a, rev a revocation clause in it it says that even though this authority is granted and agreed to have someone served electronically, it can be revoked by the tenant at any time. So absent having the agreement about electronic servicing, 
spelled out in those terms, that that clause will be determined to be ineffectual if you didn't at least have the, the agreement in there that they, the tenant can revoke at any time. So if you don't have that electronic notice authority in your lease with the right language, you might want to talk to me about it. I mean, you can find it. You don't have to talk to me about it, but just make sure that you have the revocation clause in there as well. Um, it certainly is nice to have the ability to serve someone electronically rather than uh, putting something in the mail. But, you know, all the, all the mailing does is it delays conceivably your case moving forward for two days. But at least you know, if you drop it in the mail, that you've complied with the law. Um, and there's some solace in that, uh, you know, so that you're not wondering about, oh, gosh, you know, did they truly revoke my ability to communicate with them electronically? Oops, I forgot to put the authority in there where they can revoke the, uh, the electronic servicing at any time. That's why I'm a big fan of just doing things by mail. But I'm also a fan of having an electronic form of communication that everyone can go to that, that outlines, you know, the full history of the tenancy. So I like having the electronic service provisions in there, but I'll tell you something, when it comes down to even with my properties, serving an eviction notice, the demand for possession of the notice to quit, I always do it by mail, even still. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's not not like it's expensive to send them first class mail, like 50 yeah. cents or whatever, but. Um, it's, 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 it's the manner of service that frankly, judges are most comfortable with. It starts seeing and administering. Yeah, so what are, um, Oh, so Michigan, uh, do you consider Michigan a landlord friendly or a tenant friendly state and why? Yeah, well, I consider it a, um, it used to be pretty tenant friendly, but until uh, every city in the world, in Michigan rather, started uh, enacting municipal licensing statutes and things like that. And there's other courts that are definitely tenant friendly. Um, I, I'd say that it's kind of neutral. If you go into certain courts, um, I guess it's okay for me to name name these courts. Um, I think that Hazel Park is tough. I know that Detroit can be tough, although it's gotten a little bit better. Um, there's now three judges in Detroit. Uh, Lincoln Park's a little bit strange, um, but for various reasons. There's some, you can't make the broad brush that it's a overall Michigan landlord friendly or a tenant friendly state because really it truly depends on whatever city that you're in. When a client comes to me and says, this is the property that I have and this is the problem that I'm having with the tenants, I know right off of the get-go, okay, well, this is a judge, this is a court system where the tenant is gonna be given a lot of voice in that courtroom. Um, and in that situation, if I have that knowledge as a lawyer, I have to then become a counselor and tell my client, uh, that, hey, you got a tough judge or you got a judge that, you know, because of these things, you know, you might want to just have a, an understanding or a deal with the tenant because if it gets before the judge, this can end up blowing up on you and might delay the proceedings. You have to know the court that you're in. I mean, if you were to run through, give me quick, fast fire um, names of cities, I can tell you right off the get go, um, which, which one is a landlord tenant neutral or, or tenant friendly court. Yeah, that may be uh, maybe an interesting list to have, but <laughs> you know what? I, I, I my assistant kind of has a cheat sheet on that because I, I kind of know them off the top of my head, but my assistant does the setup with cases about what they're particular about. Yeah. And yeah, that, that would be kind of interesting for me to to talk about that. I would I would hate for some of my opinions though to get back to my good judges though in those yeah, can, courts though. Certainly 
be counterproductive on your part. Right. So you mentioned Detroit as uh, is one of the cities. So I know Detroit, uh, as you mentioned before the call, has just started the Detroit's Fair Chance Housing Ordinance. Yep. Um, so let's start. They started that on Saturday, and I must confess that as I was preparing for another presentation last week, I was thumbing through my resource documents. You know, because sometimes I just need to see what the current state of the law is, and then I came across this one. Uh, because a client had just recently sent me an email about, hey, Justin, how do I deal with this? This is, you know, do I have to do things differently in, in Detroit? And, and I wasn't aware that this was passed until my client brought it up to me. And then I found out that it was passed just this last Saturday. So I'm going to hold this up. Hopefully people can see it. But basically, uh, it's just the title of the document that, um, that, that is the Fair Housing Chance Ordinance in Detroit. So what it basically says, and I already posted on this one, and it was a very lively conversation. I, whenever I post something, I kind of, I, I kind of like seeing just how it all goes, and I don't interject that much. But um, what this, what this is all about, is it essentially says that we can no longer ask in Detroit on our housing applications. Um, actually, we can ask. It's just that it puts us under heightened scrutiny. It, you can't put a box on there with a blank, essentially, that says that, have you ever been convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor? Okay, a lot of people like to know that information when they're doing tenant screening, right? I mean, I certainly would be interested in, in knowing what that's all about. The logic behind such, a, um, such an ordinance is debatable, but, uh, but what it essentially is trying to do is the city council in Detroit is making it a criminal misdemeanor to, to ask the question about felonies or misdemeanor because they have a feeling as though that it unlawfully discriminates against Detroiters that, that might otherwise have um, perhaps a greater impact or exposure to felonies or misdemeanors and therefore be refused housing. So, I'm just mentioning it from the standpoint of, I don't know how this is gonna work in the Detroit courts, but if you get a tenant that feels once again that they were uh, unfairly denied housing, especially if it's a Detroit property, then if you have on your application felony or misdemeanor questions, it, it could get you into trouble. You could be subject to an investigation. Doesn't mean that you're gonna be found guilty of, of discriminating against someone unlawfully, but the ordinance itself says that they don't want to see it, see the application process done that way. So uh, what this might have the effect of doing is landlords not being as upfront with, with tenants about what they're really looking for in a tenant. Uh, so, you know, a tenant might pay an application fee and, you know, you're going to do a criminal or a criminal background check on them anyways. You're going to find out that they were involved in a certain type of crime or misdemeanor and you're going to uh, exclude them. Where you could have just been right up front with them, say, hey, you know what, I, I don't want you in here if you've had a felony within the last five or 10 years. You know, maybe it's better to have the free exchange of, of communication with a prospective tenant, because what this is gonna do is, if you don't ask that question, a lot of people are gonna be from excluded from housing anyways, and there's gonna be a lot more uh, application fees going into the pockets of landlords. Yeah. Um, so there's exceptions to this. I, I'm not going to go into all the exceptions because 
you know, there's certainly some crimes like sex offenders and, and violent crimes that, that are uh, permissible to exclude people if you don't want them, but then you have to give them a right to show rehabilitation. It's, it's a crazy network of mess, I think, that, that what they've created in Detroit by enacting this, even though the intention might be good. I have a feeling as though this is just going to really bog the courts down and investors are not going to like having to answer these things. So probably the best measure, if you're really concerned about such a thing, is maybe don't ask that question overtly on your, your tenant application. Yeah, so you're still, I mean, you're still doing the background checks, you're still getting the information, and you're still able to make the decision, yes or no, based on that? Yeah, you, you, well, if you, if you follow this ordinance as a guideline, you can make a decision based on felonies or misdemeanors, especially if they're the type of felonies or misdemeanors that are listed in this ordinance. Like I, I mentioned one, like sex offenders, um, violent, uh, you know, I can, I have to read through this, but violent crimes, crimes resulting in lifetime, lifetime registry on sex offenders list, arson. You know, it, it brings up a good question maybe if borrowing the exact language of this ordinance and asking questions precisely about, have you ever been uh, convicted for arson? Have you ever been on the life registry on the sex offenders list? Um, have you ever been involved in a violent crime? Maybe if you're more specific and use the actual language itself from their ordinance, you might be able to solicit the response from the prospective tenant that you want in the application. But I'm not gonna give that advice yet. I'm just right. saying maybe. Um, my attitude is, is that we don't want to be bogged down with this at all. And, and so maybe we should just be avoiding the question completely. And then we're left to making our own decisions. Uh, I've defended a lot of people in fair housing related complaints. And oftentimes the worst case scenario that I see is um, they tell you to do better um, the next time and to enact policies to change your application or to, to enact policies that prohibit unlawful discrimination. So even if you get a fair housing related complaint, usually even in the worst case scenario, uh, you know, you, you don't get hit in the wallet too much, so to speak, you know, it's more like what corrective measures are you gonna undertake from here? Yeah. I can't make that broad brush claim for every fair housing related complaint, but based on what I'm seeing here, it just might be a good idea to keep that off your application. Okay, well, that's definitely something to keep a keep an eye on and see how the courts react and how how it plays out. Because you know, it definitely definitely has some positive and some negative sides on it. And depending on where you stand, you, know, you could have some pretty strong opinions about that. So, oh, and they they did believe me when I uh, <laughs> when I posted that one up. And, and you know, and there's a method to my madness. Always, I like a good popcorn show. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes I put this up there knowing exactly who the players are going to be that are going to be responding very critically about this thing. And then I know that there is a, a slew of other people that understand or sympathize with the whole objective of, of why these type of laws are starting to take effect. Yeah, it seems like the wrong group for them, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that's right. Believe me, I, I make more enemies on that group, I'll tell you when I seem like a, a wet blanket, throwing throwing a um, wet blanket on everything, saying, you better not do this, you better not do that. You know, they think that I'm just drumming up business for myself. You know, I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, if it results in business to me, fine. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, I just want to move on and just let people know constructively what 
they need to look out for. And if they run into a problem after doing it, some things themselves, I'm here for them if we work well together. But, you know, yeah, I get, I get a lot of people that, that I know will react negatively whenever I say don't do this or don't do that. Yeah, well, I got two more hot button topics. Um, definitely, there can be some controversy. So the first one is support animals. Um, so what, where is that law going? It seems like it's going uh, much favorable into the support animals. Yeah. Uh, and it also doesn't seem like there's a lot of proof burden on the uh, on the person having the, the there's not. support animal. There's not. Now, there's, there's some things that you can do, but let, let's talk about the categories of, of these types of animals. And you, you know, I haven't heard one time, Reed, between you and I talking, that you call these animals a pet, which is no, a good I'm way very careful of that, yeah. We're, we're gonna be careful about that. So let's talk about animals first. Uh, in the most broad, encompassing sense, we call them service animals, or I'm sorry, we call them assistive animals, okay? Assistive animals might comprise of service animals, where animals that you know, you, you know, you have someone that has a sight problem and you know that they're a seeing eye dog, okay? That's a service animal. Um, there's other classes of animals called emotional support animals, okay? Um, that's, that's the most gray area that we're seeing is the emotional support animal. So let's say you really don't want pets in your unit, but someone comes to you and shakes your hand and it all seems well and good and everything and, and, and you approve them and then they produce a note and say, hey, I have Fluffy here uh, who's a emotional support animal and here's my note. Uh, we're restricted, unfortunately, of playing too much detective on people that produce such a note, okay? Because we get into further problems if we try and get into person's medical records or have them describe a, a long length of history of their problems. We don't want to ask those questions because then we, we open ourselves up to other types of claims. But relative to the service animal, uh, you can actually require documentation from a certain type of medical professional, okay? You know, having it done by, um, by a secretary at a doctor's office is not going to cut it. Um, if they're a psychologist or, um, or a psychiatrist or a licensed medical health professional, and I, they have an acronym for that, but it's licensed medical health professional. If they're one of those and they give you a dated uh, notice that says, or a letter that says that this is a support animal and they are within the state of Michigan, that is all the proof that someone needs. So let's flip that a little bit. If the letter is from uh, an agency that's outside of the state, or if it includes someone that is not a treating um, medical, you know, medical professional that's authorized to diagnose this sort of thing um, or to treat this sort of thing, then you can actually reject the proof. You do so at your own risk but you can, you can reject the proof because there turned out to be this cottage, in, cottage industry for, and you can find them online where you can get your ESA, your emotional support animal certification by contacting us, paying us our $120 and then we'll write the letter to whatever airline um, or whatever landlord or whatever employer you have. Mm -hmm. And, and here's, you'll get a letter in your hand and that'll, that'll, 
be your ticket to getting your pet in or your service animal in, okay? Um, but if, you know, but if you see that it's from an out-of-state entity, that, then that's not going to be good enough. So that's, that's kind of a way of, of checking whether or not the, the whole efficacy of whether or not someone has the right documentation in order. You can't charge an extra pet fee if you find out that it's a service animal. Okay, it's kind of like enforcement agencies of civil rights will look at you charging someone for a, for a service animal, not unlike you charging someone for having a wheelchair because they might mess up your baseboards more. Mm -hmm. okay? So if you have a pet fee, you can't charge that if it's a service animal. Um, so there's things that seem commonsensical to a lot of people that you have to be careful about when you're talking about fair housing and service animals. So I talk, that's a real hot button issue because yeah, there, we even I had a couple of people with service animals come in on like three out of the last four of my rentals. So you know I don't act as detective. I just you know you win some, you lose some, uh, but just be careful about excluding service animals. Don't be a hero and don't try and you know be a, you know a private investigator and try and shoot holes through someone's proof. You know you just might have to deal with it. Now, sometimes there's dangerous animal legislations and ordinances in different cities. If they, I love pit bulls. Okay, I have pit bulls. Very sweet animals. Don't get me going <laughs> if, they're, if they're trained right. But um, but there are some cities that have dangerous breed um, animal ordinances, and and sometimes your insurance will give you trouble about certain breeds of animals that are brought in. Uh, that's a whole other 30 minute conversation read that I'm not going to get into. Yeah. Uh, we can cover that some other time if you want. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your brief thought and that's, those are good. Uh, so the last hot button topic would be, uh, and this one uh, came up with, cause you mentioned it earlier, but was uh, marijuana growing and, and, you know, the, the laws of Michigan and many states are changing and many landlords are uncomfortable with, with those type of uh, activities in their in their house, right. so what are what are your thoughts on where this is going and what what actions should people take? Right, it, it's it's kind of strange because once in Michigan we had the approval for recreational use over and above medical use, I, I got a little bit less concerned about how the law was operating in Michigan about what we can exclude and what we can include. Um, so in Michigan you can exclude smoking of whatever, you know, from your property. You can, you, can, you can do that and you're not necessarily discriminating against anyone unlawfully because they have a medical green card. Uh, because frankly, if someone has their green card, they can still always smoke outside. Mm -hmm. So you can restrict smoking inside the unit. You can uh, exclude growing from your unit because that adds moisture, right? That has a harsher effect on on the leasehold itself uh, so you know if, if you have a growing situation uh, you, you can actually prohibit that type of thing as well um, and now because it's recreationally available there's an argument to be made that you don't have to grow right yeah. so so you know I, it's growing i mean I, I guess if you grow i'm not in this line of business by the way but I guess if you grow, um, there's some advantages to that. But um, if you're a caregiver, but, um, but I, I think that there, you have no problem if you have a lease provision that excludes smoking in your unit 
and excludes growing in your unit. Well, it seemed like uh, maybe an easier question or an easier answer than I thought, so that's good. Um, well, Justin, we've definitely extended this longer than I anticipated, but uh, it was it was only due to some amazing conversations. So I'm, I'm glad uh, we were able to provide all that. Um, so how how can people get a hold of you if they want to look into your services in in Metro Detroit and where where what is your service area as well? Right, I um I like to travel too, but I as I say I, I'm only licensed in the state of Michigan, but my primary service area is Wayne County, uh, Oakland, and Macomb. But, uh, but sometimes I like a change of scenery, too. And if I have to travel up to Traverse City, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that at any time at all. But I cover all the state of Michigan. And you can find me, uh, my uh, business, thelandlordlawyer.com. Um, you can find me on the web. My email address is michiganeviction at AOL.com. Don't laugh at me, everybody. I'm an old guy. I still have the same AOL account, AOL account that I started with long ago, but you can uh, call me 248-398-9903, uh, thelandlordlawyer.com, or send me an email at michiganeviction at AOL.com. Awesome. Well, that was very good, and uh, I appreciate everybody for listening. And uh, Justin, thanks for coming. All right. Thank you for that. See you, everyone.